The Siege of New Hampshire series by Mick Rowland. Book One, Plan B Revised. Chapter Five, New Dawn, New Direction. Martin woke suddenly with a sharp pain in his calf. Charlie Horse. It was like his toes were trying to curl back the wrong way. He stood up quickly, trying to put pressure on his foot and stretch the tendons. What? What's going on? Susan slumped into the void where Martin had been sitting. Charlie Horse, Martin said. Man, this hurts. Oh, cold. Susan quickly pulled her blanket tightly around herself. Hey, I slept here all night. The, the sun is coming up. Looks like we needed more than a half hour of rest. Martin took a few steps back and forth. The pain had subsided to just a dull ache. Then, remembering why they were still in the woods, he crouched down. Susan's eyes grew wide. She remembered, too. The, the shooting. What's going on now? I don't hear anything, she whispered. I don't either, he said. I'd better go see. Susan protested with her eyes, but said nothing. Yeah, things are quiet, but we need to know for sure before we go walking around down there. Martin picked up his little multi-tool knife from the leaf litter. He tried to low-run like he had the night before, but his stiff legs were not making the task easy. His progress was awkward and slow. Leaves, slippery with the heavy dew, didn't help. Nearing the fence and the embankment, he had a red-orange glow of a sunrise behind him. That made it great for him to see, but he also cast a long shadow in front of himself. He worried that the sunrise might silhouette him if anyone hostile was still down there. He approached slowly, trying to minimize the leaf rustle. He tried to steer his shadow. If he could see all of his shadow, he reasoned that there should be no bright silhouette for anyone else to see. He peered from beside a big oak. Through the brush, he could see many cars still sitting motionless down on the dark highway. Hmm, not a good sign, Martin thought. He moved higher on the hill than he had been before to get a better look. The highway to the south was full of motionless cars. Between the rock cliffs, cars were stopped at odd angles. A minivan with a burned-out hood sat in the middle. The highway was empty farther north. Martin noticed that the chorus of car horns and sirens was missing. A few chickadees chattered in the trees, making the morning seem like a denial of the night's gunfight. Hmm, is anyone still down there? he wondered. The cars looked abandoned. From the prolonged gunfire, he half expected to see bodies scattered all over the road. He was relieved that he didn't see any. He noted that he also didn't see a white pickup with a pipe rack. Hmm, looks like Leo and David made it out, he thought. Martin backed up and peered from the other side of the tree. He expected to see no one behind the guardrail. A tingle went up his spine. Someone was still there. The figure lay on the ground, face turned away. Had the trapped thief slept under the stars, too? Or was he dead? Martin stared for a couple of long minutes, looking for movement. He saw none. Thinking that he might be too far away to tell, he moved closer. Through one good hole in the foliage, Martin had a nice clear view. He stared for a few more minutes. There was no rising or falling on the man's back. Martin noticed one of the crook's pant legs was dark, as was the nearby sand. Blood? Was he shot in the leg and bled out overnight? The hairs on Martin's neck stood as he realized he might be seeing his first dead person. 
Oh, sure, he had seen his father and mother in their caskets, but something about funeral homes and caskets made them seem unreal, like wax sculptures on display. The man lying face down on the roadside was brutally real. Martin peered up the road at the far guardrail for signs of the other crooks. Nothing. No sign of them on the median side or behind any of the cars, either. He could see a few passengers in the cars beginning to stir behind their fogged-up windows. Perhaps the crooks were gone. Things were still clearly dangerous. His eyes studied the saplings on his way back down the hill. A young poplar looked like the perfect candidate for a hefty walking stick. Greenwood had more spring, more flex. A deadwood stick was likely to break if he hit someone with it. A walking stick was a pretty scant defensive tool, but it had more reach than a three-inch blade. He nibbled at the base of the poplar with his little knife, trying to keep the process quiet. He whittled off a few branches as he walked. Susan peeked over the rocks at the sound of his approach. Well, it looks like the gunfight is over, Martin tried to force a little cheer into his tone. I think it's safe to go now. He decided not to mention the dead man. Oh, I kind of figured that, she said. It was so quiet. What did you see? Did you, did you see anything? Martin chose his words carefully to avoid both a lie and alarm. Well, I uh, saw a lot of cars sitting down there, some abandoned, some with the windows fogged up. I'd say some have people in them that spent the night, but no sign of Leo's truck. What about, uh, you know, hurt, hurt people on the road? Martin winced. Does a dead man count as a hurt person? It seemed not, but that was too far into the gray zone for his comfort. Well, I didn't see anyone hurt on the highway. The shoulder wasn't technically on the road, yet he wondered why he felt so constrained to avoid lying to her. Oh, it's a miracle, then, with all that shooting. I'm glad to hear that. I started trying to pack as best I could so that we could get going, but I can't get these little mylar things to fall down anywhere as small as they were. Is there a trick to that? No, no, there's no trick. They just don't. But you did pretty good. They'll pack away just fine like that. Man, I'm hungry, Martin said to himself. I bet you're hungry, too. I didn't eat anything since breakfast yesterday. Me either. Oh, I've never really thought about food. He dug in his bag. Afraid all I've got is a couple of old bagel halves and some water. I've got an oatmeal bar in my purse, she said. The two of them gnawed on a stiff bagel, half an oatmeal bar, and shared sips from his bottle. Martin turned on his phone to see if there was any signal. He had no bars of signal, but his phone chimed with two incoming messages. D.D., Monday, 345. I'm okay. Going to Iverson Farm with Jake. Hearts for you, L. The other message was from Margaret. Monday, 2 p.m. Got your message. Alt's working good. Be careful. M. Martin tried to send a text, but a box flashed up saying that he needed cell service for text messaging. <laughs> enough to receive, but not enough to send. Still, I got a couple of messages. They're pretty old but I did have my phone off. This must mean that part of the system is still running on backup power. Did you check your phone? Susan rummaged in her purse. Oh, rats, mine's dead. I should have turned it off yesterday. I didn't think about it. Wh who were the messages from? Well, was there any news about what's going on? No, no news about the outage. Uh, one was from my daughter Lindsay out in Wisconsin. She's okay and going to stay with her boyfriend's family. The other message was from Margaret. 
One of my messages got through. Don't know which one. She told me to be careful. Martin pointed to Susan's low-top fashion boots. We've got a good deal of walking ahead of us. You should change out of those city shoes, and your sneakers would be a whole lot better for walking in. No, that's okay. These, these are pretty comfortable. Well, suit yourself, Martin shrugged. I'll take the wheel's end again. You take the handle. He tucked his walking stick under his arm and maneuvered them through the brush, down closer to the water's edge. His legs ached, making his steps unsteady. He hoped that going down nearer to the water would hide the dead man from view. It did not. Susan dropped the handle of the bag and gasped. Oh, there's a man lying on the ground up there. You, you said there wasn't anyone hurt out here. Well, you asked about on the road. She shot him a stern glare. His gray area mincing was not appreciated. I saw him when I went to check on things, Martin whispered. I didn't want to upset you. Well, it's too late for that. Is he hurt, or, or is he... Yeah, I think he's dead. That's the crook I was telling you about who was pinned down last night. Looks like his friends didn't get him out. We should go check on him or something, right? Well, in normal times, I'd say yes, but these aren't normal times. I'm guessing that's blood beside him, and a lot of it. There's nothing we'd be able to do for him. I can't call 911, or anyone else. My phone still says there's no cell service. And we don't know if any of his buddies are still up there. Susan crouched down a bit and looked around. Oh. What we do need to do, Martin whispered, is to get away from here as quickly and as quietly as we can and get you safely up to a hotel so you don't have to spend any more nights in the woods. Martin lifted the handle and put it in her hands. Ah, yeah, I suppose you're right. She continued to stare at the dead man. I, I've never seen a, a dead person before. I feel kind of thick. Then it would be good not to look. Martin pulled at his end of the roller bag, and the two continued walking. Susan stumbled a few times, since she kept looking back towards the body. After they had walked far enough around the reservoir that 93 was obscured by trees, Martin stopped. We're going to have to climb this fence, I'm afraid. The fence is curving back around, and I don't see any breaks in it. How about if I help you over first, then hand you your things? Susan nodded. She climbed the fence unsteadily. Martin occasionally flinched as if about to help her, but stopped when he realized where his hands would have to go. Susan rolled over the bar and dropped to the other side. Martin hefted the bundle up and over. It felt twice as heavy as he remembered. He scrambled up and over the fence. Well, we have a choice, he said. Back down the ramp is 93. We can take that north. It's a direct route up to the hotel's. Or we can go up the ramp and take Route 28. The two run parallel-ish, but 28 would be longer. Which would you prefer? Oh, 28 sounds fine to me, she said. I've had quite enough of this highway. I want a road less traveled about now. Okay, then, 28 it is. Maybe we'll find a store open or something. We'll be wanting more to eat than half a bagel, and we need to get more water, too. He shook his empty water bottle. And we should tell people about that guy lying back there, she added. What if there's other hurt people back there? Shortly after re-entering the old suburb of Stoneham, Martin and Susan came upon a crowded mobile station. Despite the early hour, long lines of cars were already lined up on both sides of the street. A few engines idled. Here and there a person stood between the cars with a gas can at their feet. Other people stood in clusters, chatting, sometimes laughing. 
Hmm, it looks like they're all camped out to buy the latest iPhone or something, Martin said. From the looks of things, they're going to be there a long time. Without power, the pumps won't work. But all these people look like they plan to wait. Maybe they have hope, huh? Martin and Susan threaded through the line of cars up to the little station building. Martin went inside and found several people sitting on rust-modeled chairs, discussing when the power would come back on. Clearly, they were just waiting for it. Martin interrupted and told them about the gunfight. A couple of men had heard some shots, but didn't seem interested in details. Martin tried to tell them about the dead body on 93, and how there might be other hurt people out on the highway, but the consensus of the group was that Martin was mistaken and watched too much television. They resumed theorizing about the outage. Well, whatever, Martin thought, so much for doing one's civic duty. I could use the little girl's room, said Susan. Martin spotted two keys hanging on the wall. They had grease-smeared Mickey and Minnie tags hanging from them. Oh, here you go. I'm going to go look for some water. He found a vending machine, but the door was unlocked and the bins cleaned out. Rats, I was hoping for some snacks for the road, he said to himself. A soda vending machine was likewise open and empty. Martin walked around the building and found a garden hose attached to a faucet. There was still pressure. The water tasted strongly of iron, but it was better than nothing. He drank his fill, then topped off his bottle. Susan returned with a sour expression. I should have used the woods like you suggested. That was more disgusting than any woods. Martin suppressed his I told you so urges. Here, drink deep from this. I'll refill it for the road. The iron water only deepened her sour expression. I know, I know, Martin said, but we need to be drinking more water. We'll see if we can find better, but for now, at least we have this. While she drank, Martin continued. I tried to tell those guys inside about the fight on 93 last night and the dead guy, but they didn't seem to care. I don't think they believed me. Susan pointed across the street. Hey, people are going in that Friendly's restaurant. It must be open. Great, Martin said. Let's go see if they have anything to eat. I'll tell them about the dead guy. The inside of the restaurant was only lit by the daylight that came through the many windows. All of the booths and tables were full of people. Most sat quietly. A few carried on hushed conversations. No one had plates in front of them, only red cups. A large-boned woman in a brown apron stood behind the counter. Her face clearly had a go-away expression but Martin approached her anyway. Hi, uh, excuse me, there was a shooting last night on 93, back up there by Spot Pond. You probably heard the shots, right? The woman's eyes turned to fix on Martin, but her expression remained unchanged. Yeah, it was a lot of shooting last night. We were okay because we were behind some rocks, but there's a guy laying out there beside the guardrail. I think he's dead. Our phones don't work, so we can't call 911. So we thought we would... Uh... Martin's voice trailed off. His civic duty was falling on stony ground again. Our phones don't work either, the large-boned woman said. I suppose not. Uh, I mean, it doesn't seem like anybody's phones are. But we just thought we should tell someone there could be others that are up there hurt. That's the police's job, not mine. Is there anything else... Her tone suggested that there should be nothing else and that Martin should move along. Martin stepped back, frustrated at the woman's indifference. He shifted to more immediate needs. 
Say, you wouldn't happen to have... The large woman preempted Martin's question with a canned statement she was clearly tired of making. No, we don't got any food. Power's out. Everything's spoiled. Sorry. Her last word was anything but apologetic. Not even some... Nope. She took a deep breath and launched into her second canned statement. <sighs> no bread, no muffins, no buns. That stuff's all gone yesterday. All I got now is rotten meat, melted ice cream, and spoiled dairy. Well, what about water? Susan asked. The woman was taken aback for a moment. Yeah, I guess I got water. But uh, there ain't no ice or anything. You're going to have to share a cup, too, because I'm running low. That's okay, Susan said cheerily. The woman shuffled slowly into the kitchen. Weird that no one seems to care if anyone's hurt back there, said Martin. Hm, maybe shootings aren't all that rare here, Susan offered. Boston certainly isn't like Chicago, but I could never live in a place like that. But even here, I guess they happen. People maybe get used to them, I suppose. I don't think I could get used to that, Martin said, mostly to himself. The large woman returned with a red plastic cup. Instead of offering the cup to Susan's outstretched hand, she kept the cup close to her apron. That'll be five bucks. What? Susan's voice had a tinge of outrage. That sounds perfectly reasonable, ma'am. Thank you. Martin stepped up to the woman and pulled a bill from his wallet. Susan looked dismayed at both of them. I uh, assume this is for the cup. The woman nodded. So could we get a refill? The woman glowered, but also nodded. Martin gestured toward the far end of the counter. Let's go stand over there and enjoy our water, shall we? Five dollars for a glass of water, Susan said in a scolding whisper. And you just paid it? I know, I know, but we needed water. It tastes better than that gas station water, doesn't it? Well, yeah, but still. And we needed water more than I needed five bucks. The angry furrows in Susan's face disappeared. Huh, the water and diamonds paradox. The what? It was one of those things that Mr. Skinner used to talk about. One is useless, yet expensive. The other is vital, yet cheap. Value systems. I always thought it was sort of silly and abstract when he was talking about it. But I just experienced it. Weird. Hmm. Water and diamonds, eh? I'm going to guess that water will be treated like diamonds down here when the pumps run out of backup power. Well, drink up. I'll see if I can get our free refill before our charming hostess changes her mind. We can take it with us. Outside of the restaurant, Susan kept looking back. Did you notice? All those people, they're just sitting in a restaurant, but they had no food. I thought that was kind of odd, too, since this outage, it looks like a major one. You'd think those people would be home getting their things squared away or something. Hmm, Susan mused. I didn't do all that much in the last outage. I lit a few candles, uh, ate cold food. But it never occurred to me to go sit in a restaurant that also had no power or food. This is only the second day, so maybe they're still in the denial stage, guessed Martin. Biding time with familiar routines, waiting for somebody somewhere to flip a switch and make everything go back to normal. The walk up 28 seemed ploddingly slow. Martin's legs ached. Block after block seemed exactly the same. Martin had time to study the patterns of the houses around them. Here and there were the occasional big old farmhouses dating back from the 1800s, back when the area was mostly farms growing food for the city folks. Between the big farmhouses were bungalows from the 1930s, little capes from the post-war 40s, and ranches from the 50s. 
A few splits from the sixties must have filled in the last of the old fields and forests. Land that used to grow food a hundred years ago had become a continuous mat of houses and tiny yards. Toys lay strewn in those yards. Minivans were parked in the driveways. The scene could have been any early autumn Sunday morning, except for it being Tuesday. The sameness of all the little yards, hedges, and homes made it all feel like they were making no progress at all. The gray day gave the neighborhoods an air of bleak uniformity. Now and then, a car would turn onto 28 and drive north. The sound of a generator could be heard humming somewhere a block or two away. Martin and Susan didn't talk much. Martin was lost in his own thoughts. How far had they traveled? It felt like miles. Probably wasn't. His plan to walk home had not counted on delays from helping someone else. Part of him wanted to resent Susan for slowing him down. But resentment was a fire that wouldn't light. He had a cozy home to get to. She did not. He had a comfy chair and books to look forward to. All she had, well, was trundling along behind her in a roller bag. The least he could do was to get her all set up in a hotel for the night. He tried to focus on the future. After his good deed was completed, he could make better time. He had a golf course marked on his map as a waypoint. From Google Earth, it looked like it had a fair amount of woods and a pond. Could he get that far before nightfall? Such a gray day would turn dark sooner than usual. Would twilight find him anywhere suitable for an overnight camp if he didn't reach the golf course? He did not relish the idea of traveling after dark through an unfamiliar area. Hey, Susan called from behind him. Could we take a break? I'm getting kind of tired. Martin snapped out of his million questions trance. Oh, sure, uh, sorry. He pointed to a low concrete retaining wall along the sidewalk at the next house. Susan nodded. She sat down heavily, then flopped onto her back over the brown stubbly yard. Oh, this feels good. Martin sat down and blew out a long sigh. They had not been traveling long, so he felt embarrassed to admit that it did feel good to rest. He was certainly no triathlete. He consoled himself that they were both still tired from the previous day's adventures, and the cold night of sleeping in the woods sitting up probably afforded them very little good rest. Whether those were reasons or excuses, Martin resolved to make better time by pulling Susan's load and his backpack. She could probably walk faster if unencumbered. Perhaps, he thought, if he refreshed his feet, he would feel more perky. He took off his shoes and socks. What are you doing? she asked. I'm changing socks. I found that on long hikes, it helps to let my feet air out now and then. Happy feet are... Uh, no, that's not how it starts. Oh, never mind. I forgot how that goes. Anyhow, I probably should have done this before we got started this morning, but it felt way too cold for bare feet. What about you? Even if you don't want to change shoes, it would do your feet some good to... No, 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 I'm fine. I just need some rest. She sat up quickly and tucked her feet behind her. Martin shrugged. Yeah, well, whatever. He realized that she had only a few miles left to go, so perhaps it was not all that necessary. He put on fresh socks and clipped his old ones to the outside of his bag. How about if I pull your load for a while, give you a break, Martin offered. Oh, okay, but only for a little while. As they walked farther up 28, more cars passed by. A few people walked in from side streets to trudge up or down the street. Ahead, Martin could see more activity. A gas station on the far side of the intersection had lines of cars and people like at the mobile station. 
The convenience store parking lot on the near side had a couple of dozen people clustered around between the parked cars. An imposing figure of a man with a gray crew cut stood in front of the store. Susan read the sign out loud. Andrew's Market. Hmm, looks like they're open. Cool. Maybe they have some food, Martin suggested. They moved closer. The tall man glowered, arms folded high across his barrel chest. He blocked the convenience store's door. His posture alone told Martin that something was not right. Seeing the grip of a pistol sticking out of his waistband confirmed it. A fleshy little man, in pajama pants and slippers, was pleading with the gray-haired man. Several roundish women, also in pajama pants or sweats, stood behind pajama man, urging him on. Ah, oh, come on, Andrew. Come over out of food. The wife is hungry, and stopping shop is too far away to walk. Cash only, said Andrew. I already told you, we don't got cash. My, my EBT balance is good, I swear. Uh, same as cash. You always took my card before, remember? That was then. No power now, no card reader. Cash only. Several in the crowd, apparently in the same predicament as Pajama Man, murmured amongst themselves. You could write down how much we buy, said one of the round women, and when the power comes back on, no writing down, just cash. Martin stepped up beside Pajama Man. Uh, I've got cash. He showed the corner of a twenty-dollar bill folded in his hand. Pajama Man scowled at Martin. The women behind him were more vocal in their disapproval. Okay, said Andrew. You go in. He pulled open the door, but took a quick step in front of the Pajama Man, who made a move toward the open door. After Martin and Susan had gone through the door and it closed behind them, Andrew resumed his black knight pose. Martin could not make out the more heated exchanges going on through the glass, but it was clear that the pajama folk were upset. "'I don't know if you'll find much in here to spend your twenty bucks on,' said Susan. She pointed to the rows of low-shelf units, mostly empty. "'Whoa, looks like locusts have been here,' said Martin. Colorful signs advertised for chips and candy, but the racks were empty. Helpful labels identified where canned soups, crackers, and cookies or snacks would have been but the shelves were bare. I guess locusts don't like artichoke hearts. Susan held up two jars. Or olives. What remained on the shelves were inedible goods, like cat litter, laundry soap, sandwich bags, and air fresheners. Not much in here to make a meal out of. There's some ketchup and mayonnaise here, and a bottle of vinegar. The woman behind the counter watched them carefully. She looked apprehensive, so Martin approached casually, smiling broadly. "'Business has been pretty good, I see,' he pointed to the empty racks. "'Yes, many peoples yesterday buy many things. "'We, we take only cash now, and I tell you, uh, yes?' Uh, "'Yes, he did, and we do have cash. "'We wanted to buy some food, but you don't have much. Oh, "'Food sell fast yesterday. "'What kind of foods you are looking?' "'Martin guessed that she must have some unseen inventory. "'Well, nothing fancy.' Do you have any bread, rolls, hot dog buns, something more filling than olives? The woman looked out toward Andre, who was impassively resisting the protests of the pajama crowd, which had grown in number. You wait here. I'll be back. She sidled out from behind the counter and disappeared through a back door. While the woman was away, Martin noticed that she had a portable radio on the counter. The volume was turned down too low to hear well. Hoping to hear some news of the outage, he turned it up. Voro, 
Sudbury and Westford relay stations. Workers told me that they do not have spares for the burned-out units, which are manufactured in Germany or Asia. Crews say they can't work around these problems. Power's going to be out for a very long... The report stopped abruptly. Martin reached for the volume knob, thinking the batteries must be getting low. Before Martin touched the radio, a suave new voice came on the air. The governor wants to assure the citizens of the Commonwealth that essential services will be restored as soon as possible. There is no cause for alarm. Citizens should remain in their homes if they can. Temporary shelters are being set up in and around the greater Boston area for those in need. These will be available soon. Shelters will have heat, hot showers, and meals. These are being set up at Soldiers Field, Moakley Park. The woman returned and set a cardboard box on the counter. She turned off the radio. Bah! More lies! You don't believe them, then, I take it? Martin made conversation while peering into the box. No, even little child can see things not okay. Maybe not okay for a long time. State, she just say things be okay, just to keep the peoples calm. She waggled a finger in the air. It's the same all over. State's afraid of riot and lose control. Always worry about control. And we'll say anything to keep the peoples calm. Easier to control. But enough about state. You look through a box of foods. See what you like. You'll buy for cash. She pushed the box proudly forward, as if it were a freshly baked birthday cake. Andre and me, we had store in old country. We learned not to put all things on shelf at all times. When people get scared, they run in, they buy like crazy. Store has nothing left to sell. Not good for business. Martin could not decide if Andre and his wife were shrewd business owners for staggering their inventory, or opportunist scalpers looking to reserve some goods to sell at a higher price. Regardless, he and Susan were hungry. The box was full of small bags of chips, chocolatey snack cakes, and candy bars, all typical convenience store wares, but too salty or sweet to subsist on. Martin thought they could find more substantial food in another store, so did not want the candy or chips. He did find a box of wheat crackers on the bottom. It wasn't much, but it was some longer-lasting carbs. He thought it might tide them over until they found a different store. After all, this little store was open. That bode well that others might be open, too. Well, how about these crackers? Martin asked. Oh, for, for those, um, five dollars, said the woman. Martin sighed. The orange sticker said two thirty-nine. Is everything going to cost five dollars now? He pulled five ones from his wallet. The woman tried not to be obvious about peering into Martin's wallet. She leaned closer in a semi-whisper. We have beer and wine in the back. Perhaps you and your pretty wife would like some beer or wine, yes? Susan glanced at Martin, blushed, and looked away. Martin could feel his own face getting warm. The woman looked back and forth from Martin to Susan. Her expression was a mixture of embarrassed hostess and curious gossip. No, thank you, said Martin. The crackers will do. Oh, so sorry. Uh, you two looked so... That's okay. The crackers are all we want. No beer or wine, thanks. A commotion from the parking lot was a welcome distraction. Andre had pushed away a more zealous pajama person. Things had escalated to where Andre kept one hand on the grip of his pistol that was still in his waistband. The other hand was pointing accusations at the pajama person on the pavement. 
Susan motioned toward the tumult outside. Do you worry about staying open when people are like that? Oh, no, the woman said reassuringly. Andre, he is strong man. I not worry. But there's so many of them, Susan persisted. A and only two of you. The woman took a half-step back and motioned with her eyes for Susan to look behind the counter. The woman pulled a gun halfway out of its hiding place. From the brief glimpse Martin got, it looked like a short-barreled AK without a stock. In the close confines behind the counter, it looked huge. We had small store in Sverskoy, many years, you see, rough part of town. Learn quick for proper tools to stay in business. Susan shrank away slowly with a nervous smile. Again, she was closer to a gun than she liked. Martin had to admit it was a serious-looking gun, the kind terrorists or radical insurgents would wave in the air. Could we use your back door? Martin asked. I'd rather not go back out through all of that. Da, said the woman, after locking her secret hatch. She led the way past empty coolers to a heavily scuffed door marked Employees Only. She pushed it open and pointed to the far wall of a dimly lit room. You see yellow door? It go outside. You sure you no want maybe a couple bottles beer? Hmm? I give you good price. Martin smiled. No, still no beer, but thank you for the crackers. The two of them maneuvered past stacks of boxes in the dimly lit back room. The yellow door pushed open with a loud metal-on-metal -metal scraping sound. They both squinted in the sudden daylight. The noise of the agitated crowd across the street at the gas station caught Martin's ear. He peered over the top of the dumpsters. I wonder what's got all those people in a huff. Sounds like maybe someone was cutting in line. Or, or moved something they shouldn't have, Susan said. Martin quickly studied the two crowds. The pajama people were confronting Andre with harsh words and flailing arms. A few dozen people at the gas station were embroiled in loud exchanges, animated with finger-pointing. I don't like the idea of walking between two angry crowds. What do you say we take a block around and reconnect with 28 a bit farther up? Definitely. The mature suburban street was lined with tall trees in full autumn color. Children played in the crunching leaves, enjoying an unscheduled school vacation. Parents sat on front steps, watching their children and chatting together. This thing must be a system-wide problem with the equipment of the grid. Clearly, it's not just a regional glitch. So, what does Asia have to do with that? He said that they didn't have spares, Martin said. Apparently, those would have to come from Asia. That's going to be a problem, or at least part of the problem. Do you remember hearing about that sniper attack on a substation out in San Jose a while back? No. When was that? Right after the marathon bombings, so it didn't get a lot of media attention. Some snipers shot out a bunch of transformers at a substation. So do you think that's what it is? It's snipers? Susan asked. No, not really. It's too widespread for guys with rifles. That would take like tens of thousands of snipers all at once. Okay, that does sound unlikely. So, if it wasn't snipers, what then? Mm, beats me, Martin shrugged. Some people think it was an EMP or a solar flare. Susan looked puzzled. Which is where some big flash of energy causes electrical things to overload and burn out. Well, that sounds like a good fit. She started to nod her head, but stopped and shook it a couple of times. But I gather you don't think so. Well, I'm no EMP expert, Martin said. Brian talks about them sometimes. That's the most of what I know. 
From what he said, a big surge of energy, whether it came from a solar flare or a nuclear bomb, would affect our little delicate electronics first. You know, fry our phones and stuff. Heck, they still warn you not to have ecstatic electricity on you when you open up your computer to install more RAM. Doesn't take too much to fry them. But our phones are fine. Well, until I let my battery die, Susan said. Exactly. The little stuff is fine. It's the big industrial-grade stuff that seems to have been hit. That's where it all seems kind of backwards. So you're back to snipers? No, but that's where I was going about the San Jose thing. Back then, it took the power company a month to get that substation back online. Big parts aren't easy to come by. And that was with only one substation to repair. Everything else was working fine so they could route power around it. Add in what Leo was saying about there being no extra crews to call in, and it kind of backs up what that first radio guy was saying. Power could be out for a long time. Susan walked along, lost in her own thoughts. Martin fell into a mental hole of conspiracy theories. Would greedy power companies really fabricate a crisis? Was the equipment all still intact and they just lied about a massive failure? Why would they do that? Perhaps as a sort of corporate utility strike to extort more money from the government? Could anyone get all those utility people to agree to such a scheme? That seemed unlikely. Too many people to be in on it. How could they prevent some middle-level minion from blabbing? Thousands of minions would have to remain quiet. That seemed even less likely. The second guy mentioned emergency shelters. I wonder when they'd be open. I'm sure a lot of people will end up in them, Martin said. Well, I don't want to. A shelter is the last place I want to be. I'd much prefer a hotel. Well, I can't say I blame you there. Oh, sure. Officials start out with great intentions and all. But things get chaotic pretty fast. Kind of like that old maxim about battle plans not surviving first contact with the enemy. Bureaucratic plans don't survive first contact with an emergency. So what? The government should do nothing? People need help. Well, sure they do, but bureaucrats and their staff tend to be faithful rule followers. Rules become a substitute for thinking. Following proper procedure is what gets them promoted, so they tend to be good at doing just that. Free thinking gets you nowhere in such agencies. Real crises need free thinking and adaptation. It's easier to adapt and respond on a smaller scale, continued Martin. Back in our last local outage, we put some people up in our church. We had to improvise quite a few things, like cooking, but we could change our plans and adapt. We weren't stuck with a bureaucratic rule. I'll grant you that the church wasn't just like home, of course, but at least everyone was fed, comfortable, and had some privacy in the classrooms. Inside the Superdome after Katrina? No privacy there. Susan shuddered. Oh, yeah, I remember those photos. They brought back some bad memories. Oh, wait, you were in the Superdome after Katrina? Martin was prepared to be impressed. Oh, no, no, not that one. I was in my own. Well, when I was little, maybe five, my family had to stay in a shelter for almost a week. A train derailed. It was carrying gas or something. I don't remember what it was. Houses all around were evacuated just to be safe. Hundreds of us were in the high school gym. I don't remember a lot from back then. But I do remember that it was never quiet, even in the middle of the night. People were talking, babies crying. I don't think I slept the whole time. The part I remember clearest was that it seemed like there was always somebody looking right at me. It really creeped me out. I guess that was my superdome. Well, I can imagine the noise, with all the people. 
I bet there were dozens of babies, and little kids, too. Probably at least one kid crying around the clock. Yeah, there was. Mom said I never cried, although Mom said I always looked like I was about to. Truth was, I was too terrified to make any sound. I was afraid that if I did, even more people would be looking at me. I was never so happy as to get out of there and back into my own little room. Oh, sure, I'm an adult now, but I still don't want anything to do with living in a shelter if I can possibly help it. Oh, I hear you, said Martin. If I stayed in town, I'd probably end up in one of those shelters. To be honest, I'd rather walk home and sleep in the woods than go to a shelter. Well, I'd rather have a hotel room, if it's all the same to you, even if it's way out by 128 and doesn't have power. That's okay. All I want is a room with a door. Well, that's the plan, Martin said. They walked in the street, as the narrow sidewalk was in use by kids on skateboards and scooters. Groups of adults chatted over hedges or fences between the houses. Some sat in their cars listening to the radio. The neighborhood had an air of being all dressed up but nowhere to go. Snarl traffic and the tea being out of action were all part of it, no doubt. But even if they could have gotten into the city, what would they do? All these people, Susan said, just standing around. They probably heard what the roads are like, so they just stayed home. Oh, sure, but what'll they do later, she persisted. If the power is going to be out for a long time, what happens to all those people's jobs? I was thinking about my job at the bank. We could open the branch without power, I suppose. Things would be cash only, and we'd have to work on paper. It would be clumsy and slow, but we could do it. Well, how many people use cash anymore? Martin asked. Oh, you'd be surprised. The little sandwich shops all do a lot of cash. The pizza guy, the tchotchke gift shops at Faneuil Hall, they all deposit lots of small bills. Where I was going with that, even their cash-based jobs use electricity. If they can't make sandwiches or cook pizzas, they don't have jobs. There would be no one coming into the branch with cash anyhow. What about all these people and their jobs? She waved discreetly at a knot of adults chatting in front of a yard. What about their jobs? A couple of days off are nice, but what'll they do after that? Without power, who would still have a job to make money to pay the five bucks for a cup of water? Martin tried to think of some profession unaffected by the grid going down. He finally thought of something. A music teacher for an acoustical instrument like a violin. That might qualify if they were teaching in a building that didn't require power for lights or heat. Even though he thought of a non-powered job, if things were grid down, why would anyone bother taking violin lessons? There would be a lot more serious chores to tend to just to survive. Learning to play a violin would be pretty low on the priority list. Martin's musings took a more personal turn. What would he do with an extended outage? His job not only required power for the Internet, it relied on clients who required power. Those clients, in turn, relied on customers carrying on normal lives, all which required power. What if Brian didn't reopen the office for, say, a month? He and Margaret had enough in their savings to cover the basic bills for a month. How long could they pay their bills? Most of their money was in the bank, accessed electronically. Could he get cash from a local branch? Would there be any employees working there? Would there be any employees working at the companies that he'd send his bill to? The outage could mean no incoming bills and no outgoing payments. He would have to see how that stalemate worked out. Hmm, what if Brian never reopened the office? 
Martin felt a cold shudder down his back. What if he had to start over completely from scratch? He felt like his own house of cards might be collapsing.